Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, come Holy Spirit. You're welcome in this place. And you are already here. Keep us in this moment, Lord. Bring us into this place, mind, body, and spirit. We're able to cast off the regrets of yesterday and to put aside the worries of tomorrow and be fully present to you in this moment, Lord. We give you permission to do as you see fit in this space, within our hearts and our minds. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Tonight we're going to be talking about the spiritual gift of service. And I actually had a little bit of, uh, it's such a big concept, it's really hard to figure out where to start. How do you approach this conversation? Do we go to the place of, of Jesus washing the hands of his disciples? Do we go through this, this idea of Messiah serving? Where do we start? But as it started to come to me earlier on in the week, um, I really felt like in some way this is going to be kind of a sister sermon to the sermon that we gave on uh, the 5th of July that was about freedom. This is going to tie in with a lot of the things that I was speaking there. So this is, my sermon tonight is called The Gift of Service, or You Got Served sounds very different in the church than it does on the basketball court. <laughs> so here's where we're going to start. This is kind of my thesis for the night. The servant's heart radically breaks open the violent systems of the world in order to establish a kingdom economy. The servant's heart radically breaks open the violent systems of the world in order to establish a kingdom economy. So we're going to kind of break that down in bits and pieces. With so many of the gifts, as we've said time and again, if you want to see this spiritual gift in its greatest and most accurate and most glorious definition, you have to look at the life of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to start with tonight. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Now, I want us to kind of step into a meditation on Philippians 2. I love this scripture. It might be my favorite passage in the entire book. If every time you ever come across the name of Jesus, you could just recall this passage, you would be doing pretty well for yourself. And so I'm going to read this, and we're just going to invite the Lord just to give us, to meet us in these words Um, to speak to us the way that we're familiar with hearing from him and maybe to speak to us in the way that some of us are a little bit surprised. But I just encourage you, if you're willing, just to kind of close your eyes and just be in a posture to receive from the Lord. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read this. And just you're just inviting the Lord to speak to you through the um, the words of his servant, Paul. So Heavenly Father, uh, just engage us right now, Lord. Would you ignite and open up um, our divine imaginations? that you would call to mind for each of us um, the vision that we need of who you are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Yes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, 
but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We call this the Christ hymn. We don't know if this is something that Paul himself wrote or if Paul's quoting this much earlier song, but this is at the core of the Christian faith. And I love Philippians 2 because it's the, it's the, it's the epicenter of who Jesus is. I believe that what Philippians 2 is about is Paul telling us this is what God is really like. And is that not what we find in the life of Jesus? That everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus says is him whispering to us, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. You see, Jesus makes us rethink what God is like, makes us rethink who God is. Many of us grow up with this idea of a kind of overlord that's kind of up there somewhere in the sky that every once in a while will glance in our general direction. And if we do the rain dance and we make the sacrifices, maybe he'll pay attention to us. Maybe he will do something nice for us, but he's generally not that interested. We have that God who sometimes literally or figuratively in our own lives feels like he's over us, that he's above us, that he's holding us down underneath his thumb. But what do we find here in Jesus? We find God in flesh. God wearing the skin of a man. A God who abandons his rights for the sake of the world. And the cries of Jesus on the cross are saying, this is what God is like. This is what God really is. What a beautiful, beautiful vision this is of the divine, not something that lords its power and its wealth over top of its creation and dangles it like a puppet on a string, but a creation who is so desperately in love, a creator who is so desperately in love with his creation that he's willing to place himself underneath his own creation in order to raise it up into the fullness of what it's called to be. That is the kind of God that we worship tonight. That is the kind of Jesus that has brought us together. That's the kind of spirit that weaves us together as the people of God and the body of God. That God is willing to forsake everything that he is in order to raise us up. And I always thought about it as Jesus coming from a place of equality with God to equality with man. But it says that he makes himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That Jesus makes himself less than us. He makes himself less. He goes below the earth in order to get underneath of us. In order to lift us up into divine union 
with Father. And Paul admonishes us here. He says, you too are called to that same mind of Christ. Have that idea. We call this the Christ consciousness. You are to have the same consciousness, the same awareness of Christ Jesus who is willing to be obedient even to the point of death in order to raise up creation into life with God. And this is the mind of Christ that we're called to. And I believe that this mind of Christ and this idea of the servant heart are intricately tied together. Servant is not a vocation that a few people are to take up, but it is found at the heart of the Christ experience. So good. That is so good. Oh, hi, Jackie. But servant is not a vocation that just a few people are to take up here and there, but it's something that's at the heart of the Christ experience, that Jesus comes as the servant of all. And when we take on the mind of Christ, when we take on the heart of Christ, when we become his hands and his feet, at that central experience, we find that servant's heart, that servant's mentality. And I believe that the servant's heart is, in, is, it is administered into the world in order to violently break open the violent systems that we find in place. The violence in this world of competition and division and hierarchy and tribalism, all of these things that we see Jesus continually bumping up against as he breaks those things open in order to create space for the kingdom. Because that place of the servant, that place of the gift of service is where our hearts and our actions meet where the things that awaken on the inside of us can't help but rush out to our fingertips and to our toes and to the tips of our tongues. This is where we find the heart of the servant. And I phrase it as kingdom economy or kingdom culture. When we're talking about economy, what are we talking about? We're talking about this. What are people really worth? Think about the way that our economies in this world are kind of situated. The core question is what are people worth? What is your time worth? What is your strength worth? And I believe that's the foundation of what we're just talking about when we talk about economy. If we're talking about a kingdom economy, then our understanding of worth has to come from he who determines the value of man. And again, we find this God who bankrupts all of heaven for us. Does this not say that God actually finds in his creation something of immeasurable value and immeasurable worth? And it's the, the kind of economy that God desires to stir up in the hearts of his faithful. That we would carry that economy with us as we encounter people in this world. And we bring that same servant message of Jesus that you are of tremendous value to your Father in heaven, to your Creator. And if that's the kind of kingdom economy, then the kingdom currency is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the transaction. This is the thing that we hand back and forth to one another. And this is the beauty of a kingdom economy. In the economy of the world, there's a one-to-one -one ratio. But the economy of the kingdom is, is orchestrated in, in some miraculous way that as things are exchanged among the faithful, those who work in its economy, it can only increase. I don't know how it works. I don't know how the math works in the kingdom of God. But things become more than what they are at face value in the kingdom of God. 
that as we sow love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of these things that we call the fruit of the Spirit into the world, somehow they increase and they multiply. And like loaves and fishes, what starts off in a seemingly small amount becomes something that we can't fill every basket that we have with. This is the kind of economy that God desires to create in the world. This is the kind of economy that Jesus ushers in by his demonstration of the servant's heart. And it's the kind of economy that we're called to offer in the same way as we become the servants of the world. So tonight, I want to look at three ways that the gift of service changes the world. And it's truly countercultural in the way that it changes the world. And the first is this. Servants subvert the power structures we may take for granted. Servants, subvert the power structures that we may take for granted. If you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. We find this very tense moment when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mom comes to Jesus. And I know we've all been there, where your mom comes to Jesus and she's like, hey, who's going to, can my, you know, my sons be sit at your left hand and your right hand? And they're like, oh. No, not now, not now. Come on, Mom. You know, they're probably embarrassed of their mother. This Actually, by the way, that's one of the reasons that it's thought that they're called the sons of thunder because their mom is like this kind of like thundercloud coming in to, to make, a, make a scene. That, I'm serious. That's one of the thoughts behind the idea of sons of thunder. But so Jesus starts to engage with James and John and their mother and talks about what it truly means to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we read this in verse 24. When the ten, that is to say the other disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the disciples, just like us, they've grown up in a world that's replete with competition and division. They heard those same messages from the world that we do today, that strength makes right that the conquerors are the ones that get to write the history books, that if you want to get ahead in this life, you need to do what you've got to do in order to get your piece of the pie, even if that means that you have to push others down in order to get ahead. They heard these same messages. It was ingrained in them. So when they're coming to Jesus and they're asking about what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they're saying that same thing. How can I get ahead? How can I get what I think I deserve? How can I climb out of the rat race and put myself in a place of privilege? Because they've grown up with that empirical understanding of what power is. They've grown up with that empirical understanding of what privilege and authority is. But we find this very strange idiom with Jesus that the greatest or to become the least. And elsewhere he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this is a consistent theme in the way that Jesus teaches. And what Jesus does is he subverts the power structures of the world, those we would normally assume are in power, and the way that you get power in this world, Jesus says it's actually the opposite of everything that you've been taught. 
I believe this is why for some of us, it's hard for us to recognize leadership in the kingdom of God because it doesn't sound like leadership in the kingdom of the world, in the empire. We want someone who's large and in charge and strong and is going to just you know, dictate to us what we're supposed to do and who we're supposed to be. Someone who will climb that ladder of success and be over top of us and just orchestrate the whole thing for us. But what do we find in kingdom leaders? They have that heart of the servant. They're willing to make themselves the least. They're willing to make themselves nothing in order to make us everything. My friend Guillermo is the pastor of the church in Lima, Peru. He's such a man. He's an inspiration to me. He's a hero of mine. One time we were taking the students out to the outskirts of Lima and we were getting into this, this van that's probably supposed to seat six people and by some miracle of the divine, we were able to get 12 people in there and like three guitars and a keyboard and all of our luggage. But Guillermo, he got in first and he got in the very back row of this van and he was squished literally between two guitars and then everybody else piled in. And my friend Pam, who's the missionary down there later on, said, you see, nobody else is going to notice what that man did. That he literally put himself in the most awkward position so that no one else would have to be there. That's the kind of man he is. And he's changing the culture of his church. He's changing the culture of his neighborhood because everyone around him is used to this idea that a pastor is supposed to be someone who is loud and aggressive and commanding. But he leads from that servant heart. And those who have ears to hear and those who have eyes to see are seeing Jesus in front of them and it's transforming their understanding. You see, when we talk about the kingdom of God, We have to have in place a healthy eschatology. And it's a very fancy theological word that just basically means, what is all of this going to look like when God puts it to right? What is it going to look like when heaven and earth are brought back into accordance with one another? That's what eschatology means. And we find these prophetic pronouncements throughout Scripture where it talks about all the people coming together on the level playing field. All of us together in our diversity, but in our unity. It's an eschatology of unity and equality as we stand before the throne of God. And we get to allow that hopeful vision of the future when God finishes His rescue project to dictate how we live now. And I believe that it's the servants in the kingdom of God that most understand that vision and will do what they can not to continue to perpetuate competition and violence and corruption and division and tribalism, but to actually work now for the unity of mankind and that true shalom peace that comes between creator and creation. So servants subvert the power structures that we may take for granted. Secondly, servants advance the kingdom of heaven, not by force, but by selfless love. What do we mean when we talk about conquering? I think when we talk about that idea of conquering, at the core of it, we're coming to what is it? A demo- what kind of power are we demonstrating? A power of force or a power of love? That's the power of love. Don't take money. Don't take fame. Don't take no credit card to ride this train. Are you with me? All right, you're still here. So a little bit of a, a, a church history lesson. In AD 312, Constantine I was the Roman emperor. Later on, he would become known as Constantine the Great. And he's getting ready to go up in battle against his kind of arch nemesis. And they're going to enter into the, what's called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. 
And legend has it that Constantine has this vision in the sky of a cross, a red cross. And the next day, all of his soldiers paint a red cross on their shields. And they go in and they defeat the bad guys. And Constantine is named the emperor of Rome. Constantine, in that moment, is supposed to have become a Christian. And before long, his entire family have become Christian. Up until this moment, all of the emperors have been pagan emperors. And not only that, but there has been persistent persecution of Christians. Tertullian says the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And it was through the persecution of Christians that it spread like a wildfire. Paul even talks about this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, you've got to believe me when I say that the kingdom of heaven is advancing even as I'm in prison because it's demonstrating the truth of what it is that I'm saying. But then Constantine, the emperor, has this vision. He wins the battle. And before long, by 380, under the, the, the reign of Theodosius I, Christianity becomes the official state religion of Rome. Now all of a sudden, everybody's Christian. You know, oftentimes when we look at the history of the church, many will point to this as perhaps actually the most damaging point in our lives as the, as the church, in the history of the church, in the time of the Spirit. And why is that? Because what we saw that when Christianity was mixed in with the idea of the Roman Empire, we picked up some of those same ideas that we spread the name of Jesus through force and through conquering and establishing what we think is right over and above other people. And I believe that it has been a poison in the history of the church. It's responsible for um, the Crusades. It's responsible for the Inquisition. It's been responsible for so many of the atrocities of the church because we've taken on that empirical mindset that it's about strength of force that we're able to conquer people in the name of Jesus. But I think that this church is slowly starting to awaken back to the idea of Christ as the servant of all. And if we don't recognize Christ as the servant of all and allow that to transform us, then all of our empire building is for naught. The world does not need us to conquer it. It needs us to serve it. And that changes everything about what we say and what we do. I believe the call of the servant reminds us of who the real enemy is. That the real enemy is not other people that people are to be championed, to be declared worthy, and to be rescued. And the real enemy is the principalities of darkness. So its servants advance the kingdom of heaven, not by force, but by selfless love. And finally, servants remind us that there is a better way. I think oftentimes... In this life, when we engage in the tension and the ambiguity of life, we feel like we're faced with two kinds of options. Either there's the option of justice or there's the option of mercy. Do I attack or do I defend? Do I go out there and pursue what's right or do I let people take advantage of me because I don't want to cause a scene? I believe that Jesus came to show us a third way. Jesus came to show us a better way. And I believe that when we engage with the servant heart of God, we are transformed and we recognize that we're called to be proactive. I think servants are proactive, that they don't pursue that conquering idea of justice, nor do they pursue that weak idea of, of placating love. 
but they find that third way where justice and mercy meet, where righteousness and peace kiss one another, as it says in the Psalms. I think we find this so beautifully in the, in the image of the church that, that Paul paints for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's begin in the seventh verse there. Paul says this, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives who gave gifts to his people. Quoting from Psalm 68. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Again, there, Paul is kind of echoing that same thing that he tells us in that Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Equips everyone for the work of service. That's what the roles, that's what the gifts are there to do, that we are able to equip one another for works of service. I want to show you some work by one of my favorite artists. His name is Do Ho Su. He's a Korean sculptor working today. Absolutely gorgeous work. So I'm going to bring up a piece called Floor. Can we go to the other one first, please? This is a piece that he made in 2012 called Floor. And from a distance, we just see these panels and these little bits of color, and people are invited. You almost have to walk over this piece in order to get through the gallery. He showed this the world around. But when we look at it closer, go to the next one what we find is that the floor is being actually held up by all of these little characters and they're all slightly different in their poses and in their colors and thousands of them are positioned in order to hold up the piece of glass. And it's really interesting that this artist, he's from South Korea, which is much more of a collectivistic mindset than we have in the United States. And often when we would look at something like this, we would assume the image is about being oppressed or being held down. But for him, it actually carries these positive connotations that when the people come together and work, there is an immeasurable strength in us being able to lift up, to raise up mighty weights and to see wonderful things happen. And when I read Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, I think about the work of Doho Su. Because I think about that, all of us being equipped for works of service. That we don't find these people in the fivefold ministry and the people that work in churches positioned over top of everybody else like the empire would dictate to us. That those with power and privilege are placed at the top and those who are the least of these are at the very bottom. But what we actually find in the kingdom of God, the subversive kingdom of God, is that those who, are in the, who have the honor to lead actually become the least. They become the servants. They place themselves underneath all people and raise them up into the fullness of Christ Jesus. And I think the beauty of the economy of the kingdom is that we're all raised up together as we step into the authority that we have in Christ Jesus to lift one another up, we trust in turn someone else will come and raise us up. And together we all grow. And what do we grow into? Paul tells us we have this fruit of growth in our, in our unity in the faith, in our intimate knowledge of Jesus. And we become mature 
And what does it mean for us to become mature? We become fully human. We become human the way that God has always determined that we would be human. You know, last week, we had a practice Sunday. And for us, it's a spiritual celebration of the work that God has given us to do as His church. We shared about all of the ministries that we have going on in our community. We shared about these new ministries that we're taking on with our local and global initiatives. And each of those is an act of worship. You know, I was even talking to someone on Monday and they said, it was so good for me to sit there and to kind of listen to all of the things that we're doing as a church because I realized, oh my gosh, we're, we're actually a church. We're actually doing it. We're actually serving one another. We're actually putting aside our own self-preservation and our own selfish desires and seeking in humility to come and to serve one another. And I'm so taken by what the Lord has done in this community as he has taught us and as he has led us into that place of having the hearts of servants because it becomes the place where we express Christ Jesus to one another that in every action that we participate, whether it's in operations or it's working in greenhouse with our children, if it's greeting or it's playing worship, everything that we're about becomes this consistent thing of saying, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. Is that not each of our desire? Is that not why you're here? As St. Patrick says, and he invites us to pray, that Christ would be on the mouth of everybody who speaks of us and in the minds of everybody who thinks of us. Is that not our goal? Then we take on that mind of Christ to serve one another and to serve this world. And finally, in conclusion, all are called to serve. And some are gifted to forge the path of what radical servanthood can look like. When I preached on freedom a couple weeks ago, we used Galatians chapter 5 where it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And Paul says this in verses 13 and 14, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are we made free so that we can serve? Or do we step out by faith to serve in order that we might live free? I think it's one of those beautiful mysteries that we step into. That when our hearts and our actions meet in the servant heart of Christ Jesus, it leads us into a deeper lived-in revelation of who Jesus was and who He is today. And the more that we step out in faith, to love one another, to serve one another humbly in Christ, the more we recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And it calls us into a deeper life of service to God, to one another, and to the world. So if you'd stand with me, please. I want us to spend some time praying for one another. I think that there's power in us laying hands on each other and praying for an increase of a gift. I think it does more than us just hearing about service. But we're gonna, as we're entering into worship, I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to turn to one another and just to lay hands on each other and pray for an increase of a heart for service. 
and an increase of that gift that when we go forth from this place, we see the world in ever-increasing accuracy the way that Jesus sees it. And that ultimately, we're all able to say yes to the places where God would have us serve. To our families, to our friends, to strangers, in the workplace, in school. That we we would live sacrificially because we're sacrificing our egos in order to take up intimacy with God and to say yes to Him. So I'm going to pray and I'll invite you to lay hands on one another. Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. That 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 earth-shattering event of God forsaking heaven, of making himself less than nothing, of placing himself beneath us in order to raise us up into relationship with you, is the only event that is able to change the course of this world. Father, may we learn to live in that reality. May we learn to experience that Jesus. That in His name, every knee should bow and every tongue would confess. Because the violent systems of the world have been cast down and the kingdom of God has been established through the work of those who are willing, like Jesus, to say yes. Yes, where am I to serve? Where am I to lift others up? Where am I to see his kingdom advance? Not by force, but by selfless love. Father, would you speak to each of us right now about the gift of service, about the heart that you are instilling within us to be servants of the world? to be servants of you. I invite you now to go ahead and and pray, lay hands and pray over your neighbor.